I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all creation, human or wild, vast or small, spiritual encounters that move us beyond words. In the spring of 2018, Carl Safina got a text with a disturbing photo of a tiny hatchling barely clinging to life. In Carl's words, it looked more like a wet washcloth than a baby bird, but a bird it was, specifically an owlet. This owlet, given the name Alfie, would soon become immensely important in the Safina home. Somebody, I don't know who, found Alfie on his front lawn. She was very near to death. She was in horrible shape. That person called a wildlife rehabilitator. The rehabilitator texted me saying, do you know what kind of bird this is? Because she was so messed up looking. Her down was completely matted. Her eyes were closed. Flies had laid eggs on her skin. And if those eggs hatched, then uh, she would have just gotten eaten alive by maggots. It was uh, a horrifying thing to even think about. But she was found in the nick of time and um, the rehabilitator stabilized her, did a really, really good job of bringing her back from near death. People often do things that hurt other living things, but once in a while, we do things that help them, and this was one of those times. Carl Safina, a preeminent ecologist and nature writer, decided to adopt Alfie, who, as it turned out, was an eastern screech owl. Carl describes this variety as the smallest owl species breeding on Long Island, where he lives. And just to give you a little context about the size of a screech owl. When they're first hatched, they're almost impossibly small. You can't believe how little they are. Their body is maybe the diameter of a quarter when they first hatch. When she was found, she was maybe 12 days old, I'm guessing. Uh, She could easily just fit in the palm of your hand. Let me just say that a fully mature screech owl isn't much more than six inches long. So the foundling that Carl Safina took into his home was very vulnerable and likely a lost cause. But, undeterred, Carl decided to take up where the rehabilitator had left off and nurture Alfie back to full health. And he's written about his experience in Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Safina is also Endowed Professor for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University, and he's founding president of the not-for-profit Safina Center, which promotes conservation. His professional career has focused on marine biology, but his latest book keeps us very much either on dry land or even up in the trees with his story about Alfie. I didn't know if she was going to live. I didn't know if she was going to fly. She had a developmental delay that made it impossible for her to fly. Her feathers didn't come in right the first time. In that first autumn when she was about four months old, I didn't know if she would stay around after we um, arranged what's called a soft release in our backyard. I had no idea that she might get a mate or that uh, any of what unfolded would unfold, or, or if she had any chicks, that the chicks would survive and fledge. Was there a decisive moment, a turning point, when you said, yeah, I'm committed and I'm going to carry through with this? Because you can't rescue everything. I've been a rehabber. I've worked with hawks and owls kind of a lot. I knew what to do. I had the time to do it, and I just said, well, you know, we'll do a soft release and we'll do that here in our backyard. That was plan A. That was delayed for over a year because of the problem with her feathers not coming in right the first time. And that probably was a result of her nearly starving, drying out, or whatever else was happening to her physically in those hours when she was lying on that lawn and dying. Carl and his wife Patricia decided early on that Alfie would not have a cage which meant that she would have free reign of their Long Island home during the day. And yes, that did mean a lot of cleaning up behind her. She slept in the mudroom at night. And what about food? 
Well, experienced rehabbers know what to do. You can't just open a can of dog food that's not going to work for them. So there are people who sell rodents. They sell frozen rodents for mostly for people who have pet reptiles, snakes, and a few lizards that eat rodents. And you can easily go online and find a, a supply. And that's what we did. And then you add a little vitamin drop to each one. And if you have anything fresh, you can give them. Catching crickets uh, was something that I did. Every once in a great while, we, we have a mouse that's making a hole in our birdseed bags, and I caught a couple of mice and gave them to her fresh. It's good for them to have fresh food because uh, apparently freezing destroys some vitamins. So I am not terribly squeamish about hearing stories of this. Some people might be, but I think it's really fascinating to think like a parent owl. If you're bringing a fresh mouse as a parent owl to a baby owl, presentation is half of taste, right? Does the little animal pick it apart? Does the parent pick it apart? How does that work? It varies. It's just like with children. Anybody who is not a vegetarian does what I did for Alfie. You get meat that you didn't kill, an animal that you didn't kill that you buy. And if you present it to your child and the child is small, you cut it up for them. And then as they get bigger, they cut it up for themselves. That's what owls do when their chicks are really small. The mother will pull pieces and give it to the babies. And then as they get bigger, they'll just get dropped and the babies will pull the pieces themselves. Was there another point, I think I read, where you had like a fake mouse involved in this and putting food on it and pulling it with a string or something like that? Yes, I wanted to make sure that she understood that she needs to catch mice. We moved her outside to part of our chicken coop, the outside screened part of our chicken coop. I wanted to make sure that she always was in practice with her capabilities for being a real owl and living the life she was born to live. I wanted to make sure that she knew how to hunt and that she was skilled at catching things that were moving. So I did that. I also sprinkled some birdseed in the part of the coop that she was living in for her protective custody until she could you know, fly and we could think about opening the door. I sprinkled birdseed in there so that you know, some mice could come sniffing around and go in the coop. And I know she caught a couple of mice in the coop because I found their remains. So I wanted to make sure that she remained capable of, as I said, living the life that she was born to live. I know enough about you to know that you care deeply about the thriving of life forms on Earth. And I know that there are people who rescue everything from hummingbirds to eagles. To whales. To whales, yeah. And I also know that there's that old thing from Lauren Isley about the starfish and tossing the starfish back. Mm -hmm. One by one by one. There are some three billion birds that die with collisions with windows every single year, if I got that figure right. And you're just working with a single little creature. How do you calibrate your efforts there, given what's at stake and the volume, the scope of the problem of saving wildlife? My whole life is devoted in various ways to actually saving wildlife or um, working on this enormous problem of what's happening to the living world. This was not an attempt to save the world. This was an attempt to save one little owl. And it was a remarkably enriching experience and actually continues to be so for both of us. And you could say the same about people. You know, there are 8 billion people. We are a lot cheaper than a dime a dozen. But if somebody needs to go to the hospital, they've been hit by a car, whatever it is, you know, there's an emergency. You don't, you don't think, well, this is only one of 8 billion. You think this person needs help. That's the way it is with wildlife rehab. I do remember being in my early 20s and being part of a wildlife rehab group that I was invited to help created, actually, by a, a woman who was a few decades my senior and very experienced with these things. She, she wanted to create an organization devoted to wildlife rescue. And I was very population-oriented at the time. And I thought, well, what is this going to do? You save a couple of things here and there. 
it doesn't really make a difference. And we had one event, there was an oil spill, relatively small, a few dozen ducks and a water bird called a grebe were rescued and we brought them in and we cleaned them all up. We had a kind of a long garage that could take maybe four cars and they had kiddie pools set up in the garage for the birds that we had just rescued and just cleaned up. Volunteers for Wildlife was the group's name that Carl Safina is talking about. This smallish incident involving just a few rescued birds also took place on Long Island. And what's interesting here to me is that with ducks, you can feed them a lot of different things. But this solitary grebe, a pied-billed grebe as it happened, one of the smallest grebes in North America, well, it likes only live fish for its meals. The grebe is in a pool alone, and I'm there, and I started tossing some of the live fish, and it saw the fish swimming around, and it went scooting down and chasing them around and caught one and caught another one. And I thought, well, this isn't saving the world. This is saving this bird. And this bird's life matters to it, and that makes it matter to me. In just a moment, we'll continue the story of Carl's determined work not just to keep Alfie alive, but to ready her for independence in the wild. Because she mattered to him, because he clearly felt a kind of devotion, not only to helping her, but also understanding her, I'd like to read you a passage from Carl's book that links devotion with wonder and probably explains a fair amount of what makes him tick. Carl writes this, Among the wonders our human mind can uniquely ponder, why, in a universe said to be determined toward chaos, do things organize? Why is there anything rather than nothing? Why is the normal so astonishing, the everyday so miraculous? And why is existence simply so strange? That it all is as it is, is mystery. To want to understand it is devotion. Carl Safina is author of Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. I want to take a moment and recommend another show from the BYU Radio family of podcasts, The Lisa Show. With life's great onslaught, everything that can overwhelm us and add stress to our life, Lisa Valentine Clark, her guests and council of moms, provide a practical, positive outlook on our ongoing daily challenges. They tackle problems head-on with wisdom and experience. You'll hear suggestions for better handling interpersonal relationships, useful ideas related to health, technology, body image, family, and a host of other important issues. It's called The Lisa Show, and of course, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. At this point in our story, Alfie has made enough progress that Carl Safina and his wife Patricia have moved her from inside their home to their fully screened-in chicken coop. How did you, little by little, prepare her for the danger and perhaps the exhilaration an owl might have for, of being loose and out and about? Yeah, I think those are two very appropriate words. I was certainly worried. You know, first of all, she was very, very comfortable in that screened part of the chicken coop. She never tried to get out. Uh, you know, I think she just felt very at home. She was there for most of the calendar year of 2019. And in September of that year, we started leaving the door open. Earlier that summer, I started opening the door and letting her come to me for food. Sometimes she'd go up in a tree and I'd coax her down with the mouse on a string I never knew if this was going to be the last time I'd ever see her. Maybe she would just take off and never come back. And I was very worried about her because even wild owls that are raised by their parents, like most birds, you know, their chances of survival are not very good, especially in their first year. A lot can go wrong. But it was either have her live a totally unnatural life and no chance at contributing anything to the next generations, just be a very pretty little living dead end, 
or facing what you said, the danger and perhaps the exhilaration of being free. I know the first time she did not land on my hand for food, but actually just went up into a tree, she was taking a lot of very long, good looks around. It was exhilarating to her. She was interested in a totally new view of the world that she was getting. I coaxed her down, but eventually that circle widened. We started to just leave the door open. She went back in the coop a few times on her own because that was home. And then um, she stopped doing that. Very soon after we left the door open, she did not come back for a week. But then she returned. When she returned, she was not starving. She was not thin. She was good. She just felt that our place was home. No other screech owl female was holding down that territory. What we didn't quite know at that time was there was a male whose territory at least overlapped or was close enough to our backyard to hear her singing. Anyway, he was around. We had heard and seen him a couple of times while she was still in the coop. I didn't know if that was going to be a female that would drive. Well, I didn't know what sex she was, actually, until I saw them mating. But we called her Alfie, and we, we spoke of her as she, because the default is always to call everything he. So just to be a little bit different. But I didn't know if it was going to be a same-sex owl that was going to just drive her off or what was going to happen. But, you know, that's the way it is in life. If you try to be very safe about everything, that's another kind of a death, right? So Alfie begins to spread her wings outside of the chicken coop, and the timing of this development, Carl says, was fortuitous. Oddly enough, her first free-flying year coincided with the shutdowns due to COVID, so all of my travel was canceled. I wasn't going anywhere for work. The class I teach was online, and I was home, and there was an owl newly free-living in our backyard, an owl that I knew very, very well. And she had just acquired a wild mate. So they're mostly active, screech owls anyway, are mostly active right before dawn and right around sundown. Kind of like a lot of birds are at the beginning of the day and then they, they're less active in the middle of the day. Well, they're the same except it's at night for them. That's Alfie herself in that clip, and I'll let you hear her again in just a moment. And uh, I got up, usually in the dark. I'd go outside, I'd locate her by her calling to me or me calling to her. They have um, two calls. One is a trill, and the other is a whinny. Sounds like a little tiny winged horse in a tree somewhere. That's how they call to their family and their mates. And in our case, that's how she calls to us as well. And what about screeching, which is, after all, where they get their name from? They screech when you have your hand around them and they're upset because they are thinking you're going to kill them. That's a threat call. That's not how they call each other at all. Often she would just come right over and land in a tree a few feet away from me when I just stepped out the back door, I'd watch the interactions with her and this new mate that she had. They're very, very extended courtship, very tentative with each other at first, and then much more committed. The mate began doing a lot of the feeding. You know, I'd be up watching them for a couple of hours in the morning and two or three hours at night. That's five hours a day. That's kind of a lot of watching. And with one owl that was completely tame, you could just sit literally right next to her, and the male was taking his cues from her. So if she was relaxed around me, he quickly got pretty relaxed around me. If I was 30 feet away, he would do his normal thing. He'd come and bring her food and things like that that you would never, never, never normally see. And if you ever saw it, you might see it once. You wouldn't see it two or three times a night for weeks on end. But that was the the lucky silver lining in the COVID shutdowns. 
coincided with the fact that I had nothing better to do except I had this really great thing to do, which was to get to know this pair of owls. Now, your story with Alfie kind of follows the classic lines of a human and an animal relationship where the tension has to do with, yes, there's a bond, and yet there's also a sense that the apron strings need to be cut, right? Well, that's what family life is like. That's not an animal story. That's the story of family. So you were family with Alfie? Yeah, very much so. Well, family, that's a word that shares its root with the word familiar. There's, there's, there's this closeness that we can have with an animal. I, I'm wondering uh, to what extent there's something at stake for you as well as something at stake for Alfie in this relationship when it comes to her departure, her gradual disappearance, um, occasionally returning perhaps, but then coming, going, finding a mate, maybe not coming back. That could be hard for you, I, I, I can imagine. Well, first of all, you know, life is meaningful to any living thing. And so her life was meaningful to her. Her life is meaningful to the continuity of life on Earth because when living things procreate, that's the next generation. And if they don't procreate, life will come to a total dead end. So there's all of that meaning. And I, I loved Alfie. I, you know, love meaning I wanted to be a positive force in her life. I was trying to figure out how best to do that in the series of compromises between safety and freedom and the life she was born to live. I cared a lot that she survive. I would have been really devastated if she died and it was because of anything I did. I would have been very upset if she died, if a, a hawk caught her or she got hit by a car or any of the other things that can kill an owl. That would have been upsetting to me. With Carl mentioning procreation and the potential for a younger next generation from this pair of owls, he's prepped us for the next chapter in this story of Alfie's life. It's the circle of life part where Alfie becomes a mother. But before we reach that important part of the story, I'd like to share with you a little more of Carl's personal view as to why any of this matters. Here on Constant Wonder, it's not infrequent for our guests to underscore the sacred nature of nature, reminding us of the awe and reverence that miraculous living phenomena can evoke from us humans whenever we are sufficiently attentive to what's really going on in this world. In his book, Alfie and Me, Carl Safina points us to the meaning of the word reverence, and then he folds in the words obligation and religion, pointing out that they come from the same Latin root, so I felt perfectly justified in asking him to elaborate on these connections. Do we ever make too much of this? We, we always make too little of it. There are a lot of people who consider certain buildings and certain books to be sacred and consider no living things to be sacred. This is backwards. Maybe the only thing that really deserves reverence is the process of life and the continuity of life on this only thing we know of in the entire universe that has this miracle going on on it. There are people who have devoted their entire careers to looking for life outside of this planet and outside of this solar system. They haven't found any. There are things that exist everywhere in the universe. There's light, there's gravity, all the different atoms, subatomic particles that make those atoms, molecules, some of the compounds, they're everywhere. You look for life and you'd see none. At the very least, life is a very rare thing. And it's here and we're part of it. I can't think of anything else that really deserves a sense of reverence, except this miracle that we're part of, that we are often taught not to respect. So I'm totally with you because I have given a lot of time to the contemplation of our approach to life forms and our attention, our attentiveness, our care, our nurturing of life forms. And you've used the word miracle even here. When I go out and I see 
some animal. I can go up here in the foothills and I can see a pika, I can see a chucker, I can see a bighorn sheep, I can see a lazuli bunting. I can go see these things. And when I'm in the presence of that creature, I don't want that to dissipate or go away too quickly. I want to prolong it. Well, I always want to be there as long as I can. But let me say a couple of things. One is that you mentioned that I use the word religious, but let's put that in context because it means a lot of different things to different people. And the religious feeling is that you're connected to something that is bigger in space and time. And we are literally connected to life on this planet, which is much bigger than us in space and time. So a religious feeling about life and the living world is entirely appropriate. If you don't have that feeling, it's probably because no one ever opened that door for you. Like being in an apartment with a closed door and then you open it and there's a beautiful garden outside and you never knew that was there. And I think that that is the way many people are raised, that that door is never opened for them. The other thing is that a miracle is something that defies the laws of physics. It's something that should never happen because, you know, matter doesn't work that way. And one of the laws of physics, the second law says that the universe tends toward disorder, right? And if you talk to physicists, they will insist that, this is the basic thing about the universe. Well, what if you broke that law? What if you had something that tended toward order? And what if that order created more order and proliferated into many, many ordered forms that could make more and more of themselves until an entire planet was thoroughly covered and infused with all of this order that evolves over time to get more and more complex. That's a miracle. It breaks that law. Biologists know this, but most of them are too intimidated by physics because they can't do the math. And <laughs> physicists don't really know a lot about living things. And honestly, I mean, that sounds funny, but honestly, that's a, a real dynamic in science. Yeah, yeah. So I followed your argument all the way through, and I'm with you. When you were with Alfie, do you see a little bit of order that's a miracle in Alfie in the moment? Or is that sort of like something you process as you're going to bed later at night? No, it's a religious feeling. It's a feeling that I have about living things, is that you're always in relation and you're always in the miracle. Now, having said that, I'll take it back. I'm not always in relation because I have too many emails that I have to answer. Sure, my car sure. broke. I need to go buy food for dinner because my wife is late and she can't do it, so I have to do it. That's not what we said this morning. So, right. You can't always live that way 100% of the time, but you can live that way if you're oriented that way, and that can be most of what you feel. I mean, if that's the beginning, then you just start to see things, you start to experience things, you start to feel a relationship with the living world. That is, here's a word that's been ruined by overuse, but it is awesome. It imbues you with a sense of awe and wonder. And me, I'm trained as a scientist, so I've been given a few tools in, in my branch of science, which is ecology, to do something about that sense of awe and wonder, to observe well and maybe systematically so that you see things that you might miss otherwise, to have a certain, a certain faith and patience that... You, you know from experience that the more you look and the more you watch, the more things you will see that will be revealed to you that you'll say, wow, I never thought that would happen like that. I never thought they would do that. Alfie was constantly surprising me by doing things that I was sure screech owls never do or was different from her usual pattern. And I thought she was a, a creature of habit, but not so much sometimes. 
You would never have been surprised by anything she did had you not been remarkably attentive, observant, and present to her. Yes, and if she had not been tame because of the circumstances of how we came together. You know, I'm also a birder. If you're a birder, you see a screech owl, you see a screech owl. That's the beginning and the end of that, you know? And you say, well, how was the birding today? Oh, it was really good. I think the highlight was I saw a screech owl. But, you know, to see a screech owl almost every day for five years and watch her through two different mates who, are ve- who have, I should say this, her mates have very different personalities, the first one and the second one, very different. Different to her, different to me. How were the mates different? The first one... I saw him all the time. Every night, I could predict where they were going to meet, when they were going to meet. I'd go out and wait. There he'd be. Uh, This mate, I saw him once. I didn't see him for about three weeks. I wasn't sure if he was around at all. Their voices sound different. And the first one, I would frequently see them mating before she laid eggs, you know. There was a lot of sex going on in that honeymoon. this mate this year, I saw them mating once, and he looked very inept. He looked like he didn't know what he was doing. Yet she had four eggs hatched, so obviously it was working. Like I said, the first one, he took his cues from her about me. The second one was very aggressive to me. Did not want me anywhere near the nest, and once the chicks were out of the nest, they stay with their chicks for about three or four weeks nearby. And once those chicks were out of the nest, he was very aggressive. He would buzz me threatening and clacking and they fly completely silently. So if they're not screaming and clacking at you, you wouldn't know that they were coming. And one time he wanted to make a point and he silently came full speed and slammed me in the side of the head. You know, it freaked me out, I have to say. It was, you know, to not have any inclination that he was coming, it rattled me. But the first mate never did anything like that. I want to go back for just a moment to your comment about birders can go out. They can say, I had a good birding day. There's, you know, I saw two of these. I saw three of those. And then you said there's a qualitatively different sort of experience when you are closer to this animal and you have a relationship, like as with Alfie. I wonder if that description that you gave wouldn't be a helpful analogy for a big problem that I often have, and I think most people are susceptible to this. And it's like nature is out there, and it's different. And we humans are here, and there's kind of this notion of distance. And you have tried to make a point, I know in the past, that there's a a way for us to rethink this that it's not, there's not such a grand division. Well, yes, a lot of people think that nature is in a nature place the way that cornflakes are in the cereal aisle. You know, somebody once said to me, I really want my children to love nature, so this winter we're going to Botswana. I said to her, have you ever put a bird feeder outside your kitchen window? I don't think kids can love nature if they think nature is in Botswana because that's not where their life is. But nature is where our lives are. And mostly, we are blind to it. So how does your story, and I'm going to let you explain this, but I believe it's true. Your story of being with Alfie and engaged with that animal, it models an antidote for this big problem. It does, and it is. Well, to most people, people are out there at a distance because you go to the store and you buy food from somebody you don't know. Sometimes they're different. You've never seen them before. Sometimes you've seen them, but you have no idea what they're doing in their lives. It's a totally transactional thing. Nature is a completely relational thing, and other cultures have a relational sense of the world. They are concerned about the connections. Down the block here, we have a greengrocer, I go in there and I say, hi, how are you? How's your granddaughter? Do you have any cherries today? And she'll say, no, you know what? I'm getting cherries tomorrow. They'll be here at noon. And I'll say, well, I'm sorry, but by noon I have to be at a meeting. And she'll say, I'll leave them on your porch. That's a relationship. That's not going to a store and getting something and having no idea where it came from 
who gave it to you, or anything like that. So, yeah, this is the tip of a gigantic iceberg. Alfie's obviously better off for your being in Alfie's life. She's better off. You're, you're better off, too, for Alfie having been in your life? Without a doubt. She's been a gift. She's so enriched my experience the, the last five years. To, you know, to go out in the backyard and have a little owl come over because she wants to be near you, that's, it's like a fantasy. It's like being in the Garden of Eden. You miss her. She's not calling back. You're going out, you're making sounds. She doesn't answer anymore. That will happen someday. That will happen someday, and I will... If it's me, and I'm not the one who goes first, um, I will do what we always do when one of our loved ones ceases to be. I will be sad, and I will grieve, and I will remember all the good times. And I have a, I have a book. <laughs> I have a book to help me remember. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Safina is the Endowed Professor for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University, and he's author of Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Our conversation with Carl Safina reminded us of someone we met in 2020 on Constant Wonder, and so we thought we'd bring you a bit of a bonus today. We think you'll enjoy another Human Meets Owl story. But there's at least one important difference in this next segment. It's not a tiny screech owl we're going to be dealing with, but the world's largest owl species, the Blackiston's fish owl. It's a creature two feet long with a wingspan six feet across. Blackiston's fish owl is a rare animal. It lives on Japan's northern island of Hokkaido and also in the vast tract of land to the west and north in nearby China and Russia. Jonathan Slatt, journeyed to Siberia to track and study these owls and find ways to better preserve their habitat. His journey, described here in conversation with Eric Schultzka of our production team, was truly a remarkable and wondrous adventure. Jonathan C. Slatt is author of Owls of the Eastern Ice, a quest to find and save the world's largest owl. This quest of his started in a remote Russian village named Agzu, which Jonathan reached by helicopter. It was the end of March 2006. By the time I got up to this village called Agzu, which is just, I don't know, 150 people, and no, no road access, which is why I was flying in, I had a team of people waiting to meet me so we could go look for owls, um, essentially drive down the frozen river on snowmobiles looking for owls along the way. We're driving on the river because there's no road. But rivers in Siberia don't stay frozen forever. And when the spring ice breaks up, you can get stuck waiting for navigable water. So Slat had two goals. The first was to observe the owls, and the second was to get out before the ice broke up. The latter goal became much more pressing. At one point, we realized that we're really, really playing with... Uh, well, I was going to say with fire, because we're really <laughs> outstaying winter's welcome. Because we'd go somewhere and then crack, and you'd look behind, you'd see you know, a huge sheet of ice fell into the river. So then no one else can go that way because now it's blocked. So as we'd keep going down, that would keep happening. And at one point, we realized that at some point, we're going to have more and more of these things in front of us, and we just need to get to the coast. Otherwise, we're going to be stranded here. Now, as Slat explained, after the business of navigating these treacherous stretches of the river, and once you finally found the owls that you came to observe, the task of observing them is very different from field work in warmer areas. So when you think of a, a regular owl, like the first owl that pops into your head, it's probably something sitting in a, a quiet forest, and there's a mouse down there somewhere, and it is trying to sneak up on that mouse in near pitch darkness. So it relies on this facial disc that most owls have, this pattern of feathers that draws every sound that, that hits that disc to its ear holes. And there's some owls, like the barn owl, can hunt in 100% darkness. 
and then the other thing to be able to sneak up on that mouse, not only do they have to hear well, but they need to have they need to fly silently. So most owl flight feathers, the leading edge has its almost comb-like protrusions. And what those little protrusions do is dissipates the, the, the air right before it hits the wing so that it reduces the resistance and it's almost like a cloaking device. Now, fish owls, they have a very mildly defined facial disc and you hear them when they fly by. And if you think about what they're hunting as compared to normal owls, like they're going after fish that are underwater in these loud, rocky mountain streams. So if you had an owl that had hypersensitive hearing, it would probably go nuts. When we go out listening for owls at night, we have to move away from the river because the river is so loud. We can't hear anything. Right. So if you had like this hyper, hypersensitive hearing, yeah, you'd go crazy. The fish don't care if an owl is flapping around in the trees. You know, they don't know. So these are just adaptations that the fish owls appear to have just lost over time because they're not necessary for them to survive. You described at one point these owls as being like one of Jim Henson's darker creations. Absolutely. A nestling owl looks like a skexis from the Dark Crystal. Uh, adult owls look like Mr. Hoots is his name from Sesame Street. The birds don't look real sometimes. They look like puppets. So tell us how you find the owls in the snowy forest. I understand that the trick is often to start with your eyes on the ground rather than looking up into the trees. The key thing really is looking for their tracks along these unfrozen patches of water, which you know, there aren't that many patches of water that stay unfrozen in winter there. So if you see a patch of water and then you see tracks there, then you definitely know an owl's around. They don't always call in the evening. Like you can be at a site for a couple of days and the owls might be there, but they don't call, so you don't know that they're there. But the tracks are they're in the snow. You know, those tracks will be there until they melt or there's another snowfall. They have this distinctive duet that the pairs will sing together. Tell us about that. Duetting is uncommon in bird species overall, and it's strange that these owls are doing it. It's a four-note call, like a call and response. So the male does the first and the third note, and the female does the second and the fourth. So he calls first, then she responds immediately, and then they do it a second time. It's so synchronized that most people that hear it assume it's one bird. How can, the, how can there be a second bird who's so primed and ready to respond at the second that uh, the male starts calling? You spend a lot of your time looking for nesting trees. Tell us about that. Yeah, so these are the biggest owls in the world, right? They, you know, they stand as tall as a fire hydrant. They have six-foot wingspans. They weigh the equivalent of 11 crows. They nest in trees. And so for a tree to be big enough to just to fit one of these things, they have to be really big trees. So they nest in these water-loving, old-growth trees like cottonwood, or in this case, the Japanese poplar, and Manchurian elm. So these things get to have, you know, meter, meter and a half diameters, and they're just these thick columns rising uh, out, of the, out of the forest. And so the owl just ducks into one of these, one of the cavities that are formed when a branch falls off or something. The tricky part is that we find one of these trees, you kind of look up at it, you can tell there's a cavity up there, and could be a fish owl nest, but you know what? There could also be a hibernating bear in there. The Asiatic black bears pick the same trees that fish owls nest in to hibernate in. So sometimes you're kind of scaling up this tree, not knowing what you're going to find up there. Is it going to be a bear snout, or is it going to be a fish owl? That's one way that drone technology has has improved our lives. Uh, you know, oh. We can just we, we get to one of these trees now, and you just you just pop that sucker up and oh, have a quick and, look. And this is happening in real time because when you started this work in two thousand six, you couldn't just like drone around there, could you? Oh no, no, absolutely not. It was all yeah. It's like oh okay, you put yeah. on the spikes and you climb this like rotting tree to get up and and you know it's like ten ten fifteen meters sometimes, pretty high up in the air. Drones have definitely been improving the efficiency and, and safety of our work. Having done it the way you did it, do you feel like it's kind of cheating? No, because it, it is unsafe. You know, some of these poplars, they've got the really, really thick bark, which is, in some cases, just barely holding on to the tree. And so you stick your spike in that, and you know, you're not necessarily getting all the way down to the tree. And so it's dangerous. And yeah, I'm, I'm much happier using drones. Now, once you find the owls, then you actually have to trap them. And that doesn't sound like a, an easy task. When we first started out, no one had really caught 
adult wild fish out before. And traps tend to be, traps for raptors tend to be species specific. So something that'll work for an eagle won't necessarily work for uh, Cooper's hawk, for example. Um, so I had I consulted with some rapture capture specialists in the United States, kind of explained what I knew about the bird. They said, well, you know, try this, try this, try this, but just bring a bunch of spare materials with you and improvise on the fly. So I had this book that discussed several different traps, and we were just trying things, one thing after another, and it wasn't working, it wasn't working, it wasn't working. And what we eventually settled on was a new idea, which was, um, you're, you're kind fish. of proud of that. I could tell in the book that you guys actually got, it's almost like you've got an invention named after yourselves. Yeah, we wrote a scientific paper on it because it was a novel contribution to raptor captures. Uh, so what we did is we caught fish you know, from the rivers and then put them in this mesh box, uh, a shallow mesh box, that we put in the river at a spot where we knew owls would come by and fish periodically. And once the owls found it, they were essentially ours. So we call that the prey enclosure. And once the owl found that, it would stay there, you know, eat 10, 15 fish a night, and then just guard it, uh, look at it, and just like, wonder when the magic would start, you know, would grow more fish. And so we would kind of let the owl get used to that, uh, refill that a couple nights. And these are very, very, very cautious birds, but we would get its guard down by having just these free fish that it could constantly get. When we were ready to trap, we would just put a snare around the frame of the trap, and then the bird was ours. Several of these birds we caught multiple years. And you know, the last season, there was this one bird who came in, and man, he knew something bad was going to happen. Because we were watching on a live monitor. He knew something was bad, whipping his head around. Man, there's fish in there. And at some point, he'd be like, all right, I'm going for it, and jump in, and then immediately get snared, and then you go nuts. Whoa, it's like fish as opioids. Yeah, so you know, some species are called trap shy. You know, they don't they get caught once, that's it. You're never going to catch that bird again or never catch that animal again. And the fish owls were cautious, but you know, it's the dead of winter, and here are fish just for the taking, and they, they couldn't resist it. Now, there was one time when you had to go through some really weird contortions to get the fish for your trap. Tell us about that. So there was this one capture site where the bird found our, our prey enclosure and it had eaten all the fish. We're like, great, we're going to catch it tonight. Let's go get more fish. And we, we couldn't catch fish. Uh, for whatever reason, that river, we couldn't do it. So Anatoly had, at the hydroelectric station, he had this fishing hole where we knew we could get fish. So we, you know, we had to ski 800 meters across the valley, fish there, and then ski 800 meters back with these buckets of water and fish, get them in the car, you know, drive, I don't know, 10, you know, 10 kilometers to the other site, and then release them into our prey enclosure there. How big were these buckets? Like two gallons? What, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah, yes, st- standard bucket. And, and the, the fish that are mostly in the rivers at that time of year are it's called cherry salmon, smolt. They're 10, 15 centimeters long, and also dolly varden trout. So you could get you know, a bunch of them in a bucket, and they were, they were fine. Yeah, how do you ski carrying a bucket? Yeah, it's... <laughs> well, two buckets. You have two buckets. So I was kind of skeptical about cross-country skiing with a bucket of swimming fish in each hand. So maybe we're looking at a new Olympic biathlon event. In any case, I pressed Jonathan for detail to try to picture the scene, and I realized that what they were doing was swinging the buckets to generate forward motion. After all the ingenuity required to lure these great birds in, the researchers weren't always sure that they even had the right animal. Like this one time when they thought they had banded a male bird, and then only later they discovered that it was exhibiting distinctly female behavior. One of those things with a lot of raptors, they look similar. And the only way you can really tell them apart is if they're sitting next to each other. Uh, females and raptors are usually a little bit bigger. So if you've got a pair sitting there, you can, you can pretty confidently say, okay, that's the female, that's the male. But if you get one in your hand, it can be trickier. And with fish owls, we were weighing them, but there were so few published weights that it was difficult for us to know if it was a male or a female. And it was only years later, uh, toward the end of the project, where you know I was reviewing some of my photographs from the captures, and I figured out that females have much more white in their tails than the males do. And that became the conclusive way to tell a male from a female. 
But in the meantime, you made some big mistakes and you spent at one point like a couple of weeks trying to catch an yeah. owl that was nesting and you were never going to catch because you had banded the wrong one. Yeah, we, you know, we were at this territory. A bird is sitting up in a tree. Like we knew where it was. But we thought we had caught the male and only the females incubate. So you've got this bird sitting there and we're just like trying to catch the mate, trying to catch the mate, trying to catch the mate. And then eventually, uh, you know, someone sees a leg band on this bird that was on the nest. We're like, nuts. You know, that's, that's the one we were trying to catch. We're not going to catch an incubating bird. That's too stressful. We don't want to cause uh, the nest to fail. So we just kind of retreated in defeat. Yeah. And these birds, they will keep the same territory and even the same nesting tree for years on end, right? They will keep the same territory. Even if the male or the female dies, the surviving bird will stay there waiting for a single bird to show up. And they will use the same tree as long as it's suitable. We found that a nest tree is only suitable as a nest tree for a few years. So it takes, you know, two, three hundred years for a tree to be big enough and old enough to have a cavity for a fish owl nest. But then you know, over the years, it decays too much and becomes too deep. The owls can't get in or out or a storm knocks it down. So it's crazy. So it takes you know, hundreds of years to be suitable and then it's only suitable for perhaps a few years. Eric Schultzka of our team in conversation with Jonathan C. Slatt. Slatt is author of Owls of the Eastern Ice, a quest to find and save the world's largest owl. By the way, since publishing that book, Slatt, along with his team, has argued in the journal Avian Research that the mating calls of fish owls in continental Russia, those owls he described going to study, are different enough from other populations of blackest and fish owls that they should be considered their very own species. And that's the kind of data that might eventually help in the efforts to protect these already endangered birds. I'm always pleased to let you know that past conversations, past episodes of Constant Wonder are available on demand. Check out our archives from our website, which is byuradio.org slash constant wonder or find us wherever you listen to podcasts if you enjoy what you're hearing please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform it helps us so much to get the word out this episode was produced by tenery taylor with help from audrey hughes sound design by james call i'm marcus smith constant wonder is a production of byu radio Think again for just a moment about Carl Safina's rehab work with Alfie, that tiny helpless screech owl. This hopeless hatchling, a foundling, not even fledged out yet, about to be eaten by maggots. A few seasons ago here on Constant Wonder, we shared another story of a helpless baby, albeit a mammal, about to be eaten by rodents. Well, to get the story exactly right, a rat had already been chewing away on this helpless creature. If you benefit from the experience of listening to Constant Wonder, be sure to visit our archive of past shows to hear the miraculous story of a professional tuba player named Richard Antoine White. He's the mammal I just told you about, and he's author of the memoir, I'm Possible, a story of survival, a tuba, and the small miracle of a big dream. It's a human rescue story, season two, episode 33. You'll find it at byuradio.org slash constant wonder or wherever you get your podcasts.